On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, we're going to be chatting about CEOs of grocery store companies being called to testify in front of MPs about rising prices. Is that going to do anything? We're going to find out. Uh, we'll talk about the war in Ukraine. It's been a year now. The president, President Biden, was there. Is it time to put down weapons? Well, of course it is. A lot of people are suggesting that, but is it realistic? We'll get into that. Uh, We'll talk about the Emergencies Act decision from last Friday. We'll talk about the legislature in Ontario opening after a couple months off. Uh, The NBA All-Star Game was on the weekend. Awful. Just atrocious. Why are All-Star Games so terrible? Oh, and Marvel franchises, Star Wars franchises. People are starting to say, yeah, I think we may have hit enough of those. We may have had just about enough. Is it time for studios to start thinking beyond just superheroes? (gasps) I know, I know, kind of dangerous, but is it time? Well, we'll get into all of that. Stay tuned. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Members of Parliament have summoned the heads of Canada's largest grocery store chains to answer for the prices that you are paying when you go in there. People have been complaining for weeks and months now about grocery prices, saying this is not equal to the rate of inflation. Grocery prices are going up way faster. True? Well, my next guest will be able to tell us if it's a perception or if it's reality. He'll also hopefully be able to answer some questions about whether or not this is going to do anything. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, uh, I think if you're a regular listener, you know his name and his voice. He's a professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. He's known as the food professor. He joins us now. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Well... Let's go those two questions first. Is it perception or is it reality that food prices have been eclipsing regular inflation rates? Uh, no, it's, it's actually our reality. It's been like that for, I'd say, probably three years now. Uh, the uh, food inflation rate uh, really has exceeded uh, the general inflation rate for for a while. And that's why when you go to the grocery store, you're always a little bit shocked because, well, there's a bit of a difference. So it's it's really, it's real. Uh, and of course, uh, people are, are quick to find a scapegoat, uh, someone to blame, and, and grocers are getting a lot of the blame. And uh, and that's, that's why I think a lot of people just want uh, COs to show up in Ottawa. Well, and there was that moment, how long ago was it now? Three weeks ago, a month, when that tweet went out about the package of chicken at one of the grocery <laughs> stores in Toronto. What was it, $40 or something? for a? And, like, you know, there are always moments in any story when a photo crystallizes everybody's view. And I know it's a very, very poor example, but, for example, with what happened in Syria a while back, and you had that child that drowned and was the photo on the beach. Terrible example, yeah. but we know that there can be uh, the, 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 the napalm girl in the Vietnam War. There are photos that just for whatever reason crystallize everyone's thoughts. And I think that chicken picture, as stupid as it was, crystallized a lot of people's thoughts and they said, this is outrageous. This is out of control. Yeah. And even though when you look at the actual label, uh, chicken breasts weren't necessarily overpriced. In fact, uh, in that area, in the GTA, they were chicken breasts that were actually more expensive than in that store. So when I saw the picture, I thought, well, that's kind of regular price because it's skinless, boneless uh, chicken, free from uh, hormones, antibiotics. Yeah, you, you should be 
you should expect to pay a premium for that. But people just went viral. The label wasn't clear. Uh, people basically concluded that it was an overpriced product and, and gouging was going on. So I think people just use that picture to to lash out as much as possible, and uh, it worked. And I think, I mean, generally speaking, you're dealing with a public that doesn't really take the time to look at financial statements and understand uh, the financial data. Uh, but the reality is that grocers aren't necessarily uh, profiteering uh, as much as people would want to believe. <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on across the supply chain. We talk to ingredient companies. We talk to processors. I mean, uh, if you look at Nestle, Nestle actually generated a $16 billion, like $16 billion in profits last year. And nobody's talking about Nestle. People are talking about Loblaws which is really strange. Well, and we had the other story that you, you may, I'm sure you did a million interviews on this one. We saw the story from a couple of weeks ago where the dairy farmer had to dump out, what was it, 30,000 or three, whatever. I mean, 30,000 liters. 30,000 liters because uh, he wasn't able to sell it. He wasn't allowed to sell it. That That's going to affect prices. Like you're right. There's, there are things along the way before things get onto the shelves that are going to affect prices. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on April 1st, I don't know if you knew this, uh, Scott, but on April 1st, the federal tax on alcohol uh, is also going up uh, by 6.3%. So that's an extra $125 million in taxes added to products people you and I will buy either at a uh, liquor store or grocery store, depending on where you buy your, your, your alcohol. So those are policies that are really making anything more expensive now. And people may say, well, I don't, I don't drink alcohol. I don't. Well, again, if you actually push one price higher, everything else will follow. And it just adds up. So there's, there's more to it than just, basically accusing retailers of gouging. Now, margins are actually double of what they are in the U.S. I'll, I'll grant that. Uh, if you look at Kroger, Albertsons, margins are actually double in Canada. But, but Canada is a very expensive place to do business. I mean, we're far apart. We're 38 million people in one of the largest countries in the world. And that's why there hasn't been another banner another company investing in Canada in the last several mm. years. So when you say about all these prices that are going up, I think people do want to he- get answers from the CEOs of the grocery stores. I think they do. But is this also when the MPs are calling these people to come and be berated on the stand, essentially, when you talk about how the MPs and the government is also raising taxes on things, is this a distraction then to hide the fact that, well, we're also going to ding you with things, but you're not going to notice because you're going to be so mad at the CEOs of the supermarkets. Well, so on December 5th, I testified myself before the committee, and uh, Loblaws and, and Sobeys were invited the same night on December 5th. And uh, who showed up? CFOs, not CEOs. I was a bit surprised, and the committee actually was surprised too. Now, questions asked by the committee weren't great, Scott. I, I don't think they were prepared. So if you were, if you are to invite CEOs and they should show up, uh, just out of respect, really, uh, I hope that the committee will be prepared to ask really specific questions, good questions. And the one question I would ask: 
how much money are you making off food sales versus cosmetics, clothing, and pharmaceuticals? We can't, we don't know the answer. You can't look, you can't find the answer looking at financial statements. But I certainly would want to know how much money are they making when selling food to Canadians? Are they obligated to answer that question? I'm, well, I would ask the question. Uh, yeah. And of course, they if they show up, they should, because the morality of selling food is very different than selling lipstick or T-shirts. Uh, you know, yeah, no, hundred percent. And I think people get much crankier about the things that they have to have that they feel exactly. they're being gouged on than uh, than and otherwise. The other, the other question I would ask would be about bonuses. Why are you giving yourself high bonuses right now when a lot of families are struggling? That's the other question Great. I would ask. Very good question. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor. We always love having you on. Thanks for taking time this morning. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That, those are good questions. Those are certainly good questions, but also in there, as he points out, um, not necessarily the only target. Maybe there should be other people being called as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Later this week, it will be a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. It is a story that has been on the front burner for us anyway, uh, and a little less so at times, but it's always been there for a year. On the weekend, on Monday, actually, we saw President Joe Biden go to Ukraine in a surprise visit. That's the Twitter question today, the poll question, by the way. But we've also heard a number of people, prominent people saying, you know what, it's time for peace. Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, has said it's time for peace. Uh, Former British Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has very often said this. Roger Waters used to be in Pink Floyd. He has said this. It's You may have said this. We've all probably said this. It's a lovely idea. It's a beautiful concept. It's time for peace. But is it a little naive? Is that really, is there any chance for that really? There is a an article in The Conversation. It's a great online publication if you're interested in some thought-provoking stuff. Calls for peace in Ukraine a year after Russia's full-scale invasion are unrealistic. So says the author who joins us now, Oleksa Dracevich, a PhD, Assistant Professor, Department of History at Western University. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. Why unrealistic? I mean, maybe that's just a really obvious question, but why would it be so unrealistic? Oh, well, there's sort of three reasons to that, that I offer as, as to why. Uh, the first is one that we've known for pretty much most of the last year, which is that Russia has proven itself to be an unreliable negotiator. Uh, we now even actually, since, since my uh, article came out, we now have uh, more information by those who are able to actually get access to both Russian and Ukrainian leaders in some of those early peace meetings that suggest that uh, that the, those peace negotiations that we heard of back last March and April, uh, that the Russians, for example, came with uh, no real power to negotiate uh, really anything. They were more just there to to talk and maybe take time. Um, and so there was never really a, a strong push from the Russians to accept Ukrainian terms in any way at that point before we then heard about things like Bucha and the various mass graves and the other atrocities. And once that happened, that lent a new urgency to Ukrainian liberation. The other reasons are both uh, basically stem from how this 
the escalation has kind of developed for both sides, for the Russians. And Putin's speech that just took place uh, just a short while ago um, uh, seems to suggest he's not packing down at all. Uh, the Russians maintain their maximalist aims. For them, peace requires the Ukrainians to accept the uh, annexations we heard of in September. Uh, so Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, Luhansk, something the Ukrainians one, refuse to accept, and two, the Russians don't even uh, occupy a good chunk of that territory. For the Ukrainians, on the other hand, they have their own maximalist aims, which are that they uh, are want to liberate all of Ukrainian territory. And that stems not just from a desire to defend uh, what is their ter excuse me, what is their territory, but also uh, because we now know the scale of the atrocities, the war crime, the genocide that Russia is perpetrating on Ukrainian lands. Uh, the fact is, is that we have to assume that Russian occupation is exceptionally harsh and is um, basically condemning Ukrainians who live in uh, occupied territory. So the Ukrainians are looking to liberate Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, and eventually Crimea with the purposes of saving any Ukrainians who are living there. And that all makes it very hard to negotiate any sort of peace when both sides are maintaining their maximalist demands. Um, and really, like my, my position is very simple, that um, unless Russia starts to move from its position um, or... Um, we are able to help uh, Ukraine uh, liberate all of its territory. Peace is something premature at this point. And I, even on the latter part, even if Ukraine starts to make gains in that, uh, what evidence do we have that Vladimir Putin has any wiggle room here to back down and save face at all? That, that has been one of the real concerns I think a lot of people have had is here's someone who doesn't seem like he has left himself anywhere to go other than absolute victory. And if you only can achieve absolute victory, if that's the only option, that's a pretty desperate and pretty unrelenting place to be. Uh, indeed. And, I, and that is why I, I, you, you see the attacks on civilian infrastructure. That's why um, one of the big fears is that this is going to be a long, drawn-out conflict because the, sort of a, a number of analysts are, are starting to believe that Russia's plan is is that they might be able to still outlast the West. We've heard now concerns about whether the West can still keep pace with providing the uh, uh, any military uh, aid and support to Ukraine. Um, that's something that uh, in, in for, for Putin, more than likely, he's looking at sort of things long term. Uh, last year, there were sort of major flashpoints, the issues of like, for example, the French election, uh, the midterm elections in the United States, where there were fears that if they go a certain way, would that embolden Putin um, or sort of break down the uh, unity in the West that has come behind Ukraine to support it. And that's simply just sort of the, the unfortunate sad fact is that not only does, does sort of Putin have few places to go, I don't think Putin really um, has any interest to negotiate at this point. Um, as we have just even seen in the last couple of weeks, it seems that the Russian strategy is now still throw as many people at it. Um, that new offensive that uh, we've sort of been hearing about in the news for the last couple of weeks. Some suggest it's already started in Donetsk and Luhansk, and the big change is that the Russians have just learned to place as many people in their defensive positions in those two regions as opposed to trying to take the whole country. Well, what that has led to is significant loss of loss of life for the Russians as the Ukrainians are trying to uh, push in those positions. But because there's just so many Russian troops, the Ukrainians can't really make any progress. And so it's just turning into a, a war of attrition in, a, in another way. Well, and there's uh, also the, the element that any time anything is suggested that the West may want to up mm -hmm. its aid, instantly you hear the threat of, well, we've got nuclear weapons. 
And, and whether that's a realistic threat, whether Putin would ever really pull the trigger on that, knowing that, yeah, you know what, he would do immense damage, but could end up being blown to smithereens himself. I, I don't know, but that has certainly made everybody jittery for sure. Oh, de- Oh, definitely. And even today, uh, Putin's um, suggesting that they're going to pull out of the start uh, negotiations with the United States, a new uh, strategic arms uh, limitations treaty. Uh, That's certainly not going to help uh, those fears. Uh, That nuclear escalation card has been sort of in the background uh, for virtually the entire escalation. He even threatened that uh, before the initial invasion um, a year ago. Uh, The the chances for for nuclear war is never zero. Um, the, yeah, yeah. the, the reality is, and this is the one thing I will say to sort of, uh, potentially temper fears is that we do know that American and NATO intelligence is pretty good. Um, so there's a good chance we would know if the Russians ever decide to start seriously going down that road. Uh, and then there would be sort of ways to, uh, hopefully mitigate anything from happening in that way, much yeah. as we saw with the, uh, missile that landed in Poland back in November, right, uh, right. very quickly NATO made clear what was likely the case. And it, it, that's sort of the one thing that I think gives all of us an ability to take a breath is that there are people in the, in the decision-making positions that are thinking through things very in a, in a very measured way. Oleksa Dracevich uh, from University of Western, you can read his piece on at theconversation.com. Calls for peace in Ukraine a year after Russia's full-scale invasion are unrealistic. Uh, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it today. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Surely on Friday, uh, it would have been impossible for you not to have heard or been aware of the ruling on the Emergencies Act. I don't know how you possibly, how anybody could have not heard what the ruling was. And it was a ruling that while it certainly said that the liberal government was within its rights to invoke the Emergencies Act, also said, and it was a very interesting line that was used by the justice in this one, but a reasonable thinking person could have come to a different conclusion. It's a really interesting way of phrasing this so that you know, I don't know that there was a winner or a loser. The liberals, yes, the liberals had to be very thrilled that they were that, – that it was said that they were not in the wrong for this. It would have been political dynamite if it had come out the other way. But it's a very complicated, very complicated result, I think, anyway. Uh, Stephanie Carvin is an associate professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. She's a former national security analyst for CSIS, and she's the author of Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Thank you for the time today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Would you agree or disagree that the the ruling on Friday was a little more complicated than perhaps some people expected? I think a lot of people thought there's going to be a winner, there's going to be a loser. I think there was a lot of gray area in what came out. Actually, that's what I expected, to be honest. I think that this was, you know, based on the testimony, based on the way things went, and just based on how this all went down generally, you know, I always felt like this was going to come down to Justice Rulo saying, okay, this was justified, but here's a whole lot of problems, or alternatively saying something like, no, this wasn't justified, but here's some, you know, uh, some things we should consider and, and why, why, you know, maybe they thought it was. So actually, I did expect something like this. And, um, you know, uh, Justice Rulo, I, as you say, he's very, he's humble. I think in his writing and, um, you know, I feel like the report came out like four years ago at this point, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> there's been a lot of security stuff happening. But um, I would actually, you know, if, if you are interested in what happened and how we got to this point, it really is worth paying attention to the report. The the initial report, I mean, it looks like it's 200 pages. It, it's a very quick read. It's written in a highly accessible manner. And I think Justice Rulu wants this document to be read by Canadians and for them to come to their own conclusions about what happened. And that's what makes it so interesting. Well, and one of the things he clearly also wants, and what I'd like to talk about a little more today, because we did have this discussion, lots of everybody had the discussion on Friday about, you know, what the initial response was. But one of the, one of the things that he's put in here is 56 recommendations that really, I don't think most of them have received much attention. We're certainly not going to be going through 56 of them in the next few (laughs) minutes. However, there are a few that I thought were really intriguing that I wanted to get your thought on. The first one, there should be, and I'm paraphrasing here, there should be more discussion around what are the reasonable grounds or what's the threshold to invoke the Emergency Act. I think this speaks to what he got at, that this was very confusing and this was really some gray area. What should the reasonable grounds be? Is there a way to even put in some sort of black and white what reasonable grounds could be when every situation is going to be different? Well, I think this was actually part of the the debate that kind of came out of the testimony that we heard back in the fall. So the Emergencies Act, I mean, you you can go and read it. It's a little dense. Um, it actually outlines four different kinds of emergencies, right? And so the kind that was invoked by the Trudeau government is called a public order emergency. There's also like international war, like emergency, natural disaster, things like that. Um, in, in like there's different categories. So the, the category under public order emergency is tied very tightly to the CSIS Act, right? So we're talking terrorism, espionage, and foreign interference as a public order emergency. And um, there was some debate as to how tightly that definition had to be tied to the CSIS Act. I think actually one of the other recommendations is to, to kind of sever it, right, from the CSIS Act and to kind of come up with more modern scenarios because it, it's a pretty limited understanding as to what counts as a public order emergency. Like people blocking bridges, stopping industry across the country or stopping food coming in during the winter. Is that a public order emergency? I mean, like, so I think that he wants a little bit more clarity. I think he wants the government to sit down and think about, okay, well, what is it that we need to think about with, with regards to this? And should we tie it to this piece of legislation that was last updated in 1984. Well, and and something, I mean, it's an interesting thing you just bring up because one of the questions I had on Friday is, let's say now, okay, so this has now, the, the liberals were said, okay, it was okay for you to use this. I think there's going to now be, unless there's some real clarification, there's going to be political pressure that next time, let's say, someone stages a blockade of a rail line for a different political viewpoint, the people who now were protesting among or for the truckers are going to say, well, why are you not using the Emergency Act to get rid of them? And I think you, unless this is really clarified, you could end up with this now being a political ping pong ball with everyone saying, well, you used it on us, so you got to use it on them now. Yeah, no, you're right. And this is why we saw various, you know, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, various different Indigenous groups and things like that. They were like, nope, we do not agree. We're like, we do not like the truckers, but we do not agree with this. This is bad, right? And they will 
almost certainly be disappointed with this uh, decision or it's not really a ruling. It's kind of a finding, right? Like, I mean, this isn't a court. It was like, it's a review. And to be honest, Justice Rulo didn't even have to say yes or no, but I think he felt compelled to, I think he sure. felt like that's what the public was looking for. Right. But I think you're a hundred percent right. Like, you know, is this a Pandora's box of sorts? And I think that's why he's like, look, you need to sort this out now. But I mean, I think if you look at the, you know, you mentioned the 56 recommendations, I think 26 of them are actually just about policing, right? Like, how do you, how do you stop, how do you stop something like the convoy from happening in the first place, right? And so the first 26 recommendations are about, this is, these are steps you can take to make sure the Emergencies Act isn't necessary in the future by just, you know, because, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, um, my colleague Leah West was testifying at the commission and she called the whole situation a failure of federalism. And Justice Rulo actually quotes her in saying that. And that's really what this is. We keep looking at the federal government. Guess what? There's like a huge section here on the failures of the provincial government too, right? And just how bad the policing situation was. So if we can get the policing situation right, if sure, we can get there was a lot. the province right, Maybe we won't ever have to do this again. The, hey, let's hope so. Let, let's hope so. But I, I have a feeling that uh, whether we do it again or not, there will be people calling for it for political reasons. Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Thank you so much for this today. Hey, thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Maybe Welcome to the Jungle might be the appropriate theme song when the legislature reopens today at Queen's Park after a an extended time off. I, I, I think that there may be some, some folks walking in there that might use that song as an appropriate wake-up or a lead-in to what's going to happen. It... Um, there will be no shortage of things people will want to talk about, that the opposition parties will want to discuss, to use the most polite term for what it might be. Uh, Peter Grafe is a professor of political science with McMaster University, joins us now. Peter, thank you for doing this today. No, my pleasure. Uh, when I say they will want to discuss things, I, I, think I'm underst- I think I'm understating what some of the opposition parties will be wanting to do today. No shortage of things that they will be eager to dig into. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, off the top, uh, I mean, this ongoing uh, concern around the opening of the Green Belt and whether developers knew and, uh, you know, Doug Ford's uh, daughter Stag and Doe and was there any appropriate, uh, uh, you know, pressure put on people to make donations, I think it's going to be front and center because there's a tangibility to that that uh, I think really captures citizens. I suspect questions of healthcare reform will be, uh, you know, a kind of a second lead issue. And as we get into the budget, I think there will be, uh, you know, an attempt to make sense of whether the budget is increasing uh, its funding at the levels of inflation that we've seen or whether there will be a bunch of hidden uh, cutbacks uh, as the government may, you know, put more money behind things, but not enough to, to keep pace with inflation. So I, I think those will be the, the big uh, arms in the opposition uh, plans uh, this spring. There may be some who will say the green belt issue is number one on the agenda. Uh, I'll I'll certainly say it's on the agenda, but if you talk to people across this country, now I know we're talking Ontario, but healthcare is one of these sacred cows in Canada. I got to believe that privatizing of any kind healthcare will get the rankles up of those in the opposition parties. Is there any is there any answer that the conservatives will be able to give in 
the legislature at either today or going forward that will satisfy people when it comes to possibly, as we're hearing, opening more privatization of healthcare? Or is this a, we're fighting this no matter what? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the Conservatives have a, a two-pronged strategy. The first is to sort of broaden the healthcare discussion. And so we're seeing them bringing in legislation to, again, to try and, uh, you know, put some, um, put something behind the, the, the desire to have an easier time for health professionals from the rest of the country to come and practice in Ontario and to expand the scope of, uh, you know, that, that nurses and paramedics, uh, the scope of care they can give. So I think part of the conservative answer is to, to just try and avoid parts of the debate. But the other is, uh, you know, to see, you know, where this goes. It's really up to the opposition to convince Ontarians that a move to uh, privatized, uh, you know, more greater care and privatized clinics, especially for your knees and eyes, um, is is a problem that there's something that's lost uh, to the system when that happens, uh, whether that's, you know, because profits being made out of that money, uh, you know, whereas the public sector could have done it without that, uh, or ultimately, um, you know, that health professionals are going to practice in that system rather than the public one. But I think at the moment, the, the government's been fairly successful in just uh, people's frustration with the healthcare system and them wanting to see something different. And so I think the government's in, in a strong position unless uh, the opposition is better able to capture uh, Ontarians' concerns about things like profit making in, in the healthcare system. And, and you just touched on that this is an interesting time because when I said that this is a sacred cow, I believe that that's been a sacred cow, but I also believe that in the last number of years, Maybe that sacred cow has taken a few punches because we have seen the healthcare system wobble a little bit. Is this the opening? If you were, if you were a government that was proposing something like this, is this the time to do it? Is this maybe the one moment when you could get away with proposing something like this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I might not make it quite like the one moment, but uh, it is true that when you have a system which isn't doing that great by international standards, but where citizens, you know, like the principles of it, uh, you know, they are looking for, you know, more innovation and leadership in the public sector. And when that doesn't happen, uh, it does open the door to say, well, we can, you know, try and experiment uh, with the private. Now, obviously, like doing knees and eyes and hips uh, you know, it's not really going to, you know, I mean, those are important parts of our healthcare system now and they've made, you know, real improvement in people's uh, quality of life. But that's not really, you know, the central uh, aspect of where people think the system is falling down when they're, you know, looking at things like overburdened uh, emergency rooms, uh, you know, weights in cancer care and so on. But, you know, it's it's a way for uh, the government to try and prepare the, the population for an increased role of, of privatization and, uh, you know, one again where, you know, it's not rocket science. Uh, the public sector could have, you know, developed these kinds of clinics and staffed them adequately. Um, but given that they didn't, it does really open the door to uh, a private sector solution here. This Is this a great time? So the NDP has a new leader who will be in the legislature for the first time since becoming the leader. Is this a great time to be a new opposition leader or is this a time that is got some landmines because it would seem there's lots of opportunity to tee off, but does that make it require, is that almost a requirement then that she succeed at teeing off to make her reputation, to bolster her reputation for people who haven't really seen her until now? Yeah, I mean, I think being an opposition leader in Ontario is one of the, you know, less good jobs in the world <laughs> <laughs> and, and done because 
Ontarians aren't really following that closely. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, partisans in the NDP or partisans in the Liberal Party are, you know, expecting their leader to suddenly come in and be the most popular and, and known person in the province. So, uh, you know, there's that likely sense of frustration that's going to to grow. But, I mean, for, for Merritt Stiles, this is a pretty ideal time because the Liberals, uh, you know, are without a leader and seem to have no real uh, urgency to find one. So she does get to, to carry the opposition banner uh, and then can probably have a bit more of a, a free range in terms of defining how much she wants to be there uh, criticizing and hammering the government every day, but also how much is she trying to reach voters who haven't voted NDP in the past, but who she needs to convince in three years' time if she, she wants to form government. So does she have some other strategies for reaching Ontarians that are looking less at simply, you know, hammering the government every day, but also, uh, you know, reaching out with a, a different vision of what Ontario could be. That is Peter Grave, professional politi- uh, professor of political science with McMaster. Uh, Peter, thank you for doing this. Always appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great day. We will, um, you know, it's going to be interesting about Merritt Stiles too, something for Hamiltonians to be watching for. How much is she like Andrea Horvath or how different does she position herself from the previous leader? Because the previous leader never could get over the hump to be premier. Will that mean this will be a very different looking NDP leader? We will certainly be seeing that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The head coach of the Denver Nuggets, Michael Malone, said it was the worst basketball game ever played. It was atrocious. It was was basketball as if it had been put into a blender. I don't even know how to describe it. It was just awful. And it was, but that said, it was no worse than the NHL's all-star game. And it was certainly no worse than whatever the heck the Pro Bowl was this year. All-star games are horrible. That's what they've come to. They are now absolutely horrible, unwatchable dreck that no human being with two eyeballs should be required to watch unless they are being tortured for some reason. Mark Hebsher, you know Mark Hebsher from, well, from everywhere, but also Hebsey on Sports Podcast, author of The Greatest Athlete You've Never Heard Of. I mean, everywhere. Mark, you're everywhere, Mark. Thanks for doing this this morning. You're here, too. You're you're welcome, Scott. Omnipresent, that's me. I watched the entire NBA. Oh, man. I watched the whole thing. What, what What had you done wrong that you were obligated to do that? No, no, that's not it, Scott. It's that, listen, when you report on sports and, you know, you've got the greatest athletes in the world and you've got, you know, the world, I don't want to say the world's media, but for the most part, you know, the entire North American media and then some, because, you know, the NBA is actually, it's a global game. Yeah. And they, and it's, it's, I mean, it's LeBron, it's Giannis, it's all the big names, right? It's like these, nobody takes the day off. Like the best players don't say, I'm not going to the All-Star. They may not play much, Giannis for his wrist, but like everyone's there. You know, they've got a draft before the game. They've got the three-point shooting contest. They've got the slam dunk. They've got the skills competition. They've got the legends game. They've got the, the rookie game. I mean, all this stuff. But really, Scott, the game itself is always the worst part of it. Of course it is. No, it's always the worst part. In fact, I know people that go, they go for everything but the game. So why do it? it? Mark, why do it? We saw the NHL All-Star game. It was awful. The Pro Bowl was something else. I don't even know I have words for that one. You've put, you've brought all the, there's no point to me in bringing the greatest athletes together when the point of all-star, the point of the all-star game seems to be who can put in the least amount of effort. You or I 
honestly could have competed on that floor yesterday, which is not saying much because we couldn't normally be within a thousand miles of an NBA court. But if we had put in some effort, we probably would have been able to hold our own. That's how little effort there was being put out there. Well, look, if you've ever seen the Harlem Globetrotters play the Washington Nationals, you know that that's sort of the same thing, except instead of it being the Globetrotters against the Washington Nationals, it's two teams of tremendous players who had just been drafted five minutes earlier, right? Not that they don't know each other, but think about that. The other thing is is they they want to add drama. They know the game itself isn't the way it used to be. Prior to, you know, years ago, there was no All-Star weekend. There was the game. The best players would show up. They were proud to have been, you know, um, um, voted into the All-Star game. Uh, and there's a great incentive, too. You want to play and match up your skills against the best players. Now, I'm not saying that they, the defense was like at the seventh game of the NBA Finals, but the game was different then because there was no other reason to be there except to perform in the game. And now it's like, oh, oh you're there for the weekend. What are you going to do? I mean, the guy who won the slam dunk contest isn't even an NBA player. Yeah. And it used to be that, oh, my God, the slam dunk. Remember when Vince Carter won it? And he's like, that, it's over. Oh, Jordan versus Dominique. I mean, it was like it right. was all you talked about. Right. But now no NBA player worth his salt wants to be embarrassed in the slam dunk contest, missing, you know, some kind of a dunk that he made up on the playground and losing to a six foot two white guy who's, who's played <laughs> in, in the, the G League, League. plays for a team in Delaware in the G League. So you think a guy next year is going to go, oh, yeah, I'll go into the slam dunk contest. No chance. No chance. So you want to see the best players perform the skills competitions, the slam dunks, and you're not seeing that, Scott. you got no names that are out there. The skills competition is the biggest joke of them all. It's a joke. I don't know who won it. I don't know who lost. I have no idea. Terrible. But I watched it. So is it salvageable? And, and, and what? And I'm, not, I'm not even talking just the NBA, although that's clearly what was on this weekend. But are any of these games salvageable in any way? I mean, the one the one thought I had is, all right, why not have the G League guys play against the NBA or have the top NCAA college players and maybe their pride would want, make them want to beat the NBA guys, which would force the NBA guys to try a little bit. I don't know. But right now, yeah. it's uh, it's watching guys, watching the defense part like the Red Sea so someone can go in and throw down a dunk. Uh, you know, it's fun for the first three minutes and then it just becomes a tiresome exercise. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, when Jason Tatum scores 55 points in an all-star game and never takes a jump shot, <laughs> yeah. well, it's true. All of his no. points are in the paint and nobody's guarding him. It's layups. It's dunks. So you're right. But again, I think it's been a number of years now where people don't expect much from the game itself. Okay, so it's the weekend. Who did we see this? Like, when it was in Toronto a few years ago, I don't remember what happened in the game, but I just remember it was exciting because all these big stars were in Toronto. And they were doing stuff. They were like being human beings. They, you know, it wasn't so much let's go watch them in the skills contest. It's like, hey, maybe we'll see them around town. So it's great for the town, for Salt Lake City this year and whoever's, you know, hosting the All-Star game. But I think our expectations, Scott, have gotten a lot lower. For the, I don't think anyone expects anymore the NHL All-Star game or the, base, I mean, the baseball All-Star game is a home run derby thing, right? So they've added these things so that if the game is lousy, or the guys aren't trying as hard as they possibly can, then at least there's something else for people to watch. But, but increasingly, those other things, the slam dunk or the home run derby or... They're losing know, a bit of luster, too. It's uh, the well, whole thing. Yeah, yeah, we, we got to run, unfortunately. But you know what? Uh, catch Mark. I'm sure Mark will be talking about this on his podcast. You oh, know the, yeah. The podcast, Hebsey on Sports? You betcha. Friday mornings.
There you go, Mark. Always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Seems that not everybody is wildly enthused by the endless stream of spin-offs and movies and shows and everything else that goes with Star Wars. Liam Neeson, who has been Jedi Master Ki-Gon Jinn. Is that how you say it? I'm sorry. It's... Um, it's been a while. Anyway, he was asked if he's going to reprise the role, and he says, mm, really, um, no, the Star Wars franchise is damaging its own magic by just having too many shows and too many spinoffs. And this is not unique to Star Wars. The Marvel Cinematic Universe fans are saying, yeah, we're feeling, well, there was a poll done, that they're feeling a little fatigued by just how many of these movies are coming out. Now, the irony of this is they all make lots of money, usually more than the one before. So people are on the one hand saying, I'm kind of done with this. On the other hand, they're voting with their wallets. But are we reaching a point when just endless, endless, endless streams of superhero movies are and Star Wars movies and others are going to become too much? Mike Cicchini is executive producer of Den of Geek. He joins us now. Mike, thanks for doing this. Hi, how you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. I, now, as I say, the fact that I had a hard time pronouncing Liam Neeson's character will tell you I am not the target audience for this. However... I have wondered this very thing. At what point do you make so many of these movies that even those who are diehard fans start to say, boy, there's a lot? Well, we might already be there. And, you know, fair enough, there has been a little bit too much Marvel content, particularly over the last year with all the streaming shows. I think that's what's really doing them in more than the movie stuff, because there is kind of... uh, a perception with even like people who are fans um, but aren't necessarily as hardcore as somebody like me who works for Den Geek, they feel like, oh man, if I haven't watched all four of the TV shows that came out this year, can I still go see this movie? And that's a big problem, I think, for, uh, you know, for studios when that starts to be the perception with audiences. There's another th- question, and again, I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert on this one because, as I say, these are the, this is just not my wheelhouse, but I know how many people it is. Once you've made each of these, it would seem to me that there is huge pressure to make sure the next one is bigger and better. It's like any f- franchise. You don't, the first Indiana Jones, the second one had to have m- bigger stunts and the third one in Jurassic Park and all the rest. At what point when you're into your 30s of these movies, do you start to say, what else can we do to be, <laughs> to be bigger and better because we've done the biggest we can think of? I think that in order for superhero movies to continue to thrive and you know and i mean thrive creatively as well as commercially they need to change that mentality once avengers made a billion dollars at the box office and a billion dollars kind of became the standard for blockbuster success that set things down a very tricky path and i think what works so well about these characters and why they you know they have endured on the page and on the screen for 80 years is the fact that they can there are different kinds of adventures that can be told superhero movies should not have to feel that they have to top the one before them what they need to do is find ways to branch out and tell different kinds of stories like a captain america movie 
doesn't have to cost $250 million to make. It can kind of feel like a spy thriller, you know? Um, I think they need to start looking in different, like at different genres where they can place these characters in order to get out of that mindset. I think you just used the key word for any franchise, for any movie. You, you used the word story. Is there a risk? And I'm not saying that that has been eliminated, but is there a risk that the story part of it gets lost when you're pumping out as many movies as they are? As long as we have lots of big f effects and big stunts and big explosions, the story can fall behind. Is, is there a risk that that can happen? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, but if the story is good, look, there was a period where Marvel was putting out three or four movies a year in the lead up to Endgame. And the story was very clear and it was very good. And Endgame was a very satisfying, you know, capstone to that story. Um, the direction and vision doesn't necessarily seem as clear right now. And I think general audiences are starting to respond to that. Yeah. And, and look, it's, it's certainly not these. I mean, there's criticism of a lot of movies that, you know, story gets lost or story gets put aside because we now can do CGI and all these things. And who needs a story? At the same time, I, I still think, and maybe I'm being very simple here, but I still think that a great story beats all when it comes to putting something on screen. Absolutely. And it's not, it doesn't matter if it's chapter 31 or chapter 45. If the story is engaging, people will be there. And I just want to take this back to Liam Neeson's comments about Star Wars. There has been a little bit too much Star Wars in recent years, but last year, Andor was one of the most compelling TV series of the year, period. Like Star Wars or no Star Wars. And I think as long as something is that creative and that inventive and that willing to take chances within the format of the franchise, audiences will respond to that. And all of these franchises can continue to grow, but they can evolve creatively as well. Mike Cicchini, executive producer of Den of Geek. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.